y'all, and welcome to the Source Code Podcast. My name is Chris Sanders, and I want to welcome you to our fifth episode. And I'm really excited about this one because if you've ever done any type of packet analysis, then you probably have used Wireshark. So we have the creator of Wireshark on today, Mr. Gerald Combs. And I first met Gerald uh, really uh, when I wrote the first edition of Practical Packet Analysis, which was right about 10 years ago. Uh, Gerald's always been incredibly supportive of my work and the books I've written and the blog posts and such. And I've been uh, really fortunate to be able to watch Wireshark grow in use. And that's a great thing because it's an awesome tool. I use it almost every single day. Uh, A lot of my success is tied to the success of Wireshark or has been in the past because as it's gotten more popular, my books have gotten more popular. And that's certainly uh, helped me. So I'm definitely indebted to Gerald and all the work he does along with the ever-growing Wireshark community. So you're going to hear a lot of great things. We're going to talk about Gerald's uh, childhood growing up in uh, Kansas City. Of course, we can't talk about Kansas City without talking about a little barbecue, so you'll get a little bit of that too. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the creation of Wireshark, uh, kind of the peaks and valleys associated with creating and maintaining an open source project like that, and just a little bit about Gerald's origin story and and his life and how he got to the point he is. And uh, he's a very successful guy, very talented and skilled programmer, but also a very humble guy, very easy to talk to, and I think you'll really enjoy learning from him. Now, before we get going here, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors. And if you know me, you know the Rural Technology Fund. It's a nonprofit I started in 2008 to help invest in rural and high poverty areas and really bring more excitement about technology jobs to those areas. I'm from a very rural area, so it means a whole lot to me. Uh, Last year, we were able to put a lot of technology education resources into the hands of kids across the country. As a matter of fact, we were able to impact 10,000 kids across the country. And that's a pretty big accomplishment, but this year we're trying to do even more. We're trying to reach 25,000 kids in 2017. We're already making great progress towards that goal, but we do need your help to do that. So we recently set up a Patreon page. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it allows you to uh, basically schedule recurring donations. And there's also specific reward levels, kind of like a Kickstarter type thing, where if you contribute a certain level per month, you get some pretty neat rewards. So you can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash RTF. And you spell Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So patreon.com slash RTF. And you can check out our page. I've got a short video there explaining a little bit more about what we do, how it's beneficial to uh, students in rural and high poverty areas, and the various ways you can contribute and the cool rewards you get for doing so. So the Rural Technology Fund, very near and dear to my heart. So please take a minute to check that out. So without any further delay, let's get on over to Gerald. Gerald, how are you, sir? Great. How are you? Oh, I couldn't be doing better. Thanks for uh, thanks for making the time for us here today. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to hear a little bit, and for the folks listening, uh, I gave an introduction. They, they probably know a lot about Wireshark, but they not, may not know as much about you. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing, what you're involved with, kind of set the stage for us. Well, my day-to-day job is to take care of Wireshark. I work for a company called River, Riverbed Technology, and uh, I work in the Steel Central Division, which is uh, the network and application performance uh, division, and they pay me to work on Wireshark. That's a pretty so. slick job, uh, and, and obviously <laughs> a, a pretty important one. Uh, do, you, do you have a sense of how many people are using Wireshark now at all? Uh, I don't really have a good handle on how many people use it day to day. I can tell you from the servers that I manage, people download the Windows version 
uh, like a million, million and a half times a month, uh, wow. typically. And, you know, kind of extrapolating from there, you know, there's a pretty sizable group of people that use Wireshark day to day. Wow. I, I can't imagine there are many open source projects with that kind of success, kind of, kind of globally. Like I have to imagine Wireshark has to be one of the biggest at this point. Um, I assume so, but you know, there, there are projects that are definitely bigger. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, all right. Well, I want to kind of take it back and kind of start from the beginning and talk about how you got to this point. I mean, I think a lot of people are interested in, in how someone gets to manage one of the world's biggest open source projects and, and the path that led you there. Now, I know you're a California guy, but you're not originally from California. You're from the Midwest. Is that right? Correct. I, I grew up in Kansas City uh, on the south side of town uh, and on the Missouri side. Kansas City straddles both Kansas and Missouri. And if you mess that up, then the natives really get mad at you. So <laughs> so um, I guess I guess the most important question, that, and you might expect this coming from me, but if you're in from Kansas City, so are you a barbecue guy at all? Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, Definitely, most so, definitely. Do you and have that? Do you have a preference? One of the, uh, like, uh, I, like, sorry. Do you have a pre- <laughs> preference? Like, I know, like Kansas City, a lot of burn-ins, things like that. Do you have like a favorite thing? Uh, I love burn-ins. Uh, there's a particular restaurant, Jack Stack, uh, and my favorite meal is the burn-ins from there. Um, and if you do go to Jack Stack, my recommendation is to get the burn-ins and swap out the fries and slaw, which are the default sides, and swap them out for the beans and the vegetable kebab. That's a meal to die for. Nice. I will. Uh, I will jot that down and keep that in mind. We might have some Kansas City listeners who uh, who can take you up on that too. That's awesome. I'm uh, uh, folks who know me know uh, I could t- I could probably spend this entire hour talking about barbecue, but I won't make them suffer that. <laughs> um, so tell me what was uh, so what was it like growing up in Kansas City? I mean, I'm from Kentucky, so there's not a lot of distance there. There's maybe some similarity, but what do you do for fun growing up as a kid in in uh, in uh, Kansas City? Well, I grew up in a on the south side in. Uh, it, I won't say older suburb, but it was, definitely wasn't a brand new suburb, and it you know kind of straddled the the outskirts of town. So I feel kind of fortunate because that uh, let me grow up in a in a an area with a lot of diversity. Meaning there were people that I went to school with from a wide variety of economic and socioeconomic backgrounds, and so um, and I'm you know friends on Facebook with a lot of these people to this day, and and. That was a really nice thing. But, um, yeah, I was in a city and I had access to all the things in a medium-sized city, like, you know, nice museums and, you know, cultural things like that. But at the same time, you know, I was in Boy Scouts and we would go canoeing throughout the area. Missouri and Arkansas have a bunch of nice rivers for canoeing, for instance, and and I got to do that a lot. So there was a really nice mix of of urban and rural that, that I was exposed to growing up. Okay, now I think of Kansas City now, and it's kind of become maybe in the last twenty years kind of a tech hub. Like there are a lot of tech jobs there. Um, that that side of things is growing, but but what I mean, obviously that hasn't been the case for very long. What's is there like a big prevailing industry in Kansas City that employed most people, or is it kind of ri- based on the river being there, or, or do you have a sense of that? Um, the the big thing when I started out in the tech industry there was Sprint. Sprint, you know was the big tech company and you know the the joke one of my employees one of my coworkers uh always just used to tell was that you know sprint's goal was to hire every tech person in town twice you know because they would do layoffs and you know hire people back and all this other stuff but um aside from that 
the place where I got my start was in the tech field was at UMKC, the local university. And they, you know, they had a really nice network and I got exposed to a lot of, you know, cool and interesting new at that time technology. And, uh, you know, that, that was pretty cool. And, and from there I went to work at an ISP and, and uh, um, and then on to being a consultant. And then, uh, in 2006, I moved out to California to join Case Technologies, which was acquired by Riverbed. But uh, the, the the thing that strikes me about Kansas City is all the stuff they've added since I left. I mean, my, my, my wife and I joke that, that all this cool stuff happened after we left because uh, after 2006, when we moved out here, they added you know this really nice art museum and this uh, performing arts center and all this other school st- cool stuff. And a lot of that stuff, as... I recall was funded by a company called Cerner and Cerner is the, the new big you know, tech powerhouse in town to, to a great extent. Uh, they write medical software. Gotcha. Uh, the other, th- the other thing that came in was Google fiber. Kansas city was the first Google fiber town. So I got to see all these Facebook messages from people, you know, posting their, their, uh, speed test speeds, you know, getting a gigabit up and down and, and me sitting here, you know, with my crappy cable connection, not getting near that and being jealous. So, <laughs> Yeah, the, the, that's great. Now, do you do you get back to Kansas City often? I mean, is that still home to you, or, or, or no? Uh, definitely. Uh, you know, my our, my family's back there, my mom and dad and siblings, and we we get back there when we can. Gotcha. So, tell me about school um, in Kansas City. You mentioned this a lot. You had a lot of different people from from different backgrounds and a lot of, uh, I guess, different cultures there as well. What were what were you like as a student? I mean, were you always really inquisitive. I mean, there, there's this whole narrative that like tech people are always like really into science and really inquisitive. I mean, was that the case for you or were you a little different in that regard? No, that was definitely the case for me. I, I probably, well, I won't say probably, I definitely wasn't as good of a student as I should have been. I, w- I was a lazy student, meaning that I would, you know, I, I wouldn't really prepare for tests, but I'd managed to do well on them, which, um, that worked out really well in high school, but once I hit college, that didn't work at all. And so, you know, that was, a, <laughs> I guess, an early lesson learned. Yeah. <laughs> I think I can, I can relate to that. When I, I, I think folks in tech tend to, uh, um, tend to be more about oftentimes gaming the test than anything else, which is uh, uh, a useful skill to have, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean that that laziness kind of helps out in, in a Larry Wall, you know, Pearl sort of way with automating things, but uh, it doesn't help out very well at all when when you have to prep for a test and you're you're just too lazy to do that or you know too lazy to do actual homework. But um, no, I, I did pretty well in school and and uh, I yeah I, I enjoyed my time at school. So did you um, did you get interested in technology? At a younger age, like 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 middle high school level, or was that not until college? Oh no, I was as as far back as I can recall. I've been interested in technology and, and you know and various things like electronics and, and computers and things like that. Um, I remember my very first computer was a Timex Sinclair One Thousand, which was this little teeny thing with a you know a Z eighty processor, and I think I had sixteen megs of RAM and. Um, but it was the very first thing that I actually I could actually write code on, and the way I got it was uh, my parents. We went to you know a mall that opened up nearby, and my parents went and we needed new furniture, so they bought new furniture. And and for whatever promotion, after buying the furniture, they got these 
matching dollars from this purchase. And my dad ended up buying me this little Timex Sinclair through that. And so I got a computer because my dad bought a couch. And that's how I got into writing code. <laughs> wow. And then I guess the, re- the rest is history. I think that's, yeah. I can't imagine a lot of other people would, uh, would trace their origins back to, uh, to, to buying a couch, but that's, that's pretty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, go ahead. But they always did weird things like that in the eighties. You know, you, you open up a bank account and you get like a toaster, you know, that that's a kind of a standard joke, but it, it's, it's a thing that happened. So, yeah. Uh, I don't know if people do that sort of thing nowadays. <laughs> they do have them occasionally down here. Like you, you can literally no joke go down the road for me. And if you buy a new, I think it's like a Ford pickup, you get a uh, like an M, like an M4 or an AR15 or some type of rifle with it. <laughs> awesome. Which, which that's the South for you. I mean, that's that's how that goes. <laughs> Um, they also have the the occasional. If you buy a going back to furniture, if you buy a couch, you uh, you get a free moon pie. Uh, they're big on the moon pies around here. That's that's obviously not near as much of a value, but uh, I guess you take what you can get. <laughs> um, hey, moon pie is a moon pie, man. Yeah, yeah, you can't. It's hard to get mad at a moon pie. <laughs> um, I'll put that in the category of things I did not think I would be saying on this podcast. But I'll take it. <laughs> Um, so, so what did your parents think? I mean, they, they got you this computer. I mean, were they, and you, you obviously got, you spent a lot of time with it. You were learning to program. Did they think that was weird or they're like, maybe there's something to this. So we should kind of foster this and, and, and make and see it through. Um, no, they're very encouraging. And that was, a that was common with most everybody I knew. Everybody was encouraging of, of, you know, any, you know, interests like that that you would take up uh you know not only my parents but you know friends and family at school and teachers and things like that so um you know there there was definitely no discouragement or, or you know making fun of the nerd or anything like that so that that was pretty helpful that's great well so you so you're doing this and i guess at some point you decide you want to go to college and you're and you i guess you eventually land on uh the university there in kansas city can you tell me a little bit about the decision you made as far as, you know, number one, why did you choose the, that college that you chose? I mean, was it just kind of a local thing or something more? And then, you know, what did you major in and what pushed you towards that major? Well, I originally went to school in, uh, in a town in Missouri called Rolla. They have a technology, you know, a, a tech university there uh, at the time was called UMR. Um, it's called Mist or Must or something these days. They uh, All the universities in Missouri got renamed at some point over the past 10 years. But um, I originally studied electrical engineering because I had no clue what else to study, and it seemed interesting. And uh, as I mentioned, I, I just due to me being able to be lazy in high school, you know, I, I tried doing that in college, and it didn't translate well at all. So I ended up being a, a pretty poor student. So I kind of bounced around. I went to community college for a semester or two and then ended up at, at UMKC. But uh, even though even though I was a terrible student, I still learned a lot of stuff and got exposed to, to a great many things. And the, the really beneficial thing about going to school at UMR was, uh, A, I met my wife. Uh, you know, I, I absolutely do not regret that. That was probably one of the better things that happened to me ever. But yeah. Uh, the other thing was just all the all the things that UMR got that I got exposed to. I you know, it, it, you know, it was the typical go to college and get a well rounded education sort of thing. And I remember one of the classes I took uh, was an elective called uh, Ethics of Computer Usage, and that's that was the first time I had ever heard of the GNU Manifesto. You know, which was the, the you know the thing that inspired the GPL and went along with what Richard Solomon was doing. 
that was also a class where I got to meet uh, Roger Beaujolais. Uh, the professor brought in Roger Beaujolais, and if you don't know who that is, he was one of the guys who blew the whistle on the Challenger accident. And so, you know, that was a pretty big, impactful thing that happened. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is even though I was a pretty poor student, I still did get a lot of stuff out of going to college, and, and I don't regret it at all. And I did learn a lot of stuff. Awesome. Now, did you have any, like, weird or crazy, like, early jobs back then that, that you did to play college, like non-tech-related things? Oh, I had every job ever when I was in high school and college. Uh, my, f- my, my first job was a, an usher at a movie theater. And oh, wow. uh, not only that, I was an usher at a dollar movie house. And uh, do you remember those? Oh, the, yeah, like yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, we, we, I, I guess we still have those now, but now they're like $6 movie houses because the <laughs> movie houses are like 20 bucks. Well, the I don't know what the e- economics look like nowadays, but back then, if you owned a movie theater chain, the vast majority, I mean, a huge portion of your outlay went to paying the distributors for the right to show the movies. And for first-run movies, it was a particularly expensive. And so what a lot of theater chains would do, would they would show not quite first-run movies. They'd show slightly older movies that, that had been out you know, for a few weeks, a month or so. And I guess getting those from the distributors were a lot cheaper. So if you own a movie theater chain and you have an older theater that's not really attracting a lot of crowds, you can maybe switch it to Dollar Movie House and you know, still make money on that theater. And so I think that was the case at the, you know, the one that I worked at anyway. Um, but I learned a lot of stuff like that about how you know, basic economics works for, for businesses. Um, for instance, movie theater chains don't really make money on ticket sales. I mean, yeah, they pay towards the, the paying for the rental of the movie. But the big thing is selling you this bucket of busy water that costs them maybe five or 10 cents and they charge you two twenty five or three twenty five for it. And the same goes with popcorn. That's, you know, that, uh, that margin is how they actually make their money uh, on concessions. Yeah. Well, I, and it sounds like I mean, you don't have to draw too many lines to go from, you know, that model of the, you don't make your money on the tickets, you make it on the concessions to you give away the software and you make your money on the support and the <laughs> enterprise level stuff. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, now that you mention it, that's, that's probably a good, pretty, pretty good parallel. I, 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 I do see a lot of the same parallels in the software world. Um, you know, if you can charge people money to download something that you, you only pay for those little bits for the hosting, but you know, that, that margin is pretty huge. Yeah. Uh, but all those jobs, you know, I had the job at the theater. I worked as a cashier at, uh, um, Again, going along with the Dollar Movie House, the, the, the cashier job I worked at was at Montgomery Ward's clearance outlet. This was not a regular Montgomery Ward. It was the store where they sent all their crap they couldn't sell. And um, so they got sold at a discount. Uh, let's see. In college, I painted half the rooms in a dorm over the summer. I uh, worked about three days. I lasted three days at a gasket factory where you just dump rubber into this hopper and out come these little gaskets that you have to box up. Um, I worked the graveyard shift at that, so it didn't last very long at all. Um, just all these little things, you know, jobs that, uh, you know, doing various things, but, you know, I did learn the importance of hard work and I learned that if you see a mess, you grab a mop and, and things like that, that really shaped my career later on. 
Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess to some degree, he's work ethic and and I and as my dad would have said, I guess character building, uh, hard work. That's uh, that's important stuff. So you, I mean, it, it's it's refreshing to hear folks talk about you know all these jobs, which are not by any means glamorous, and and how they set you up later in life for when you're doing the job you want to do, but you have to apply really the same level of work ethic to a lot of degree. Yeah. Um, that, but, but those early jobs really did help me later on because when I did get my first real job, you know, at the university programming, it, it, it kind of reinforced the, the notion that I shouldn't be a great afraid to go grab, you know, go take on a task. And if I see a mess, clean it up and, and, you know, to go try new things and, and things like that. And, uh, and it, you know, carries on even to today. Uh, at, at Sharkfest, I like to joke that uh, I'm Wireshark's janitor. And, and in fact, that was on my name tag, the, I think, the last time around. But, but to a serious extent, that, that kind of is the case. I, I take care of all the, you know, the, the cleanup jobs and the maintenance jobs with Wireshark that, that helps the community to do their job. And that helps all the, the Wireshark developers do their job as far as writing code and being able to commit and, and you know, being able to do releases and things like that. Yeah. Well, and that, that's a great way to look at it, too. I mean, at the end of the day, that job has to be done somewhere. So, yeah. You know, yeah. So, so, so why not you? Because that, you know, it's if you don't do it, someone else is doing it and it's taken away from their time to, to develop and, and do the things they're really engaged in. So I think that's an admirable approach to that. Yeah. Um, um, so, te- so tell me but, a little bit about uh, – your first job, you mentioned your first kind of real job, so to speak, was was at uh, the university doing programming. So how did that come about? And tell me a little bit about kind of what you did there. Well, um, that was my first real extended job doing programming. I think before that, actually, yeah, before that, I, uh, I think I worked maybe a week as a programmer for this guy who wrote insurance rating software. And it was the exact opposite of open source. I mean, this, you know, the, all the code was written um, in a form that was obfuscated, which means that uh, in his particular case, you didn't have variable names. You had, if you wanted to use an integer and to add an integer to this program, you went to this global array of integers and you added an index to that array and you had a new integer you could use. There are no variable names. Um, and if you write any sort of code and you're listening to me describe this, you're probably cringing or throwing up right now. Uh, but that's how all the code looked like. There is just this if you there every integer was i and in an index array and every string was a you know i think s and in an, an index array and things like that and uh he then took each night he moved the code to floppy disks and took it home like i said it was the exact exact opposite of open source um and i did this for a few days and then um i think he let me go cuz you really can't work in this environment. <laughs> um, but after that, I, I got a job at university. I started out doing tech support and ultimately became a, a sysad. The, the job title is programmer, but I was mainly a sysad administrator. But that's where I got exposed to open source, which is a huge contrast to, to this job I had, you know, working on the insurance software. All the source was open. Everything was, you know, fairly well written, it, you know, particularly for the time it was really well written and everybody was sharing what they were doing and that really shaped how I approached software you know, from then on. So it sounds like 
at this time and, and kind of in these formative years, you were already thinking a lot about the concept of, of open source. I mean, is, is that accurate to say? Um, actually, no. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, one of the class I t- classes I took in college, we covered the GNU Manifesto and the GNU Project. And, yeah, I kind of read about that. And then later on, I was exposed to actual you know GPL software. And it wasn't until I was exposed to the software that really clicked that, that, hey, this is a useful thing, you know, being able to, to share this stuff. And then over the years, after I, you know, spent time at the university, I went to work at, as a, at an ISP, and we used plenty of open source software there. And, you know, towards the end of my tenure there, that's when I first started writing Ethereal, which became Wireshark. And that's when I decided to release it as open source because, you know, one of the reasons I did that was because I'd used so much open source software at that point. It just seemed to, to make, A, it made sense to do that, and B, it made made sense to do it as a contribution back to the community for all this, you know, software that I've been able to, to use and make use of. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I get, that's probably a good transition into into the story. I think probably a lot of listeners really want to hear is this little project where you decided to write a packet sniffer. Uh, <laughs> so, 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 so tell me a little bit about kind of what led up to that and and, and the process of, of kind of starting that. Like, what what are the humble beginnings of what everyone now knows as Wireshark? Well, when I worked at the university, we had a network journal sniffer, and the particular model we had was this compact uh, portable. It was well, it was a luggable. It was this computer that weighed, I don't know how many pounds, but it had uh, had this little plasma screen. It was really heavy, and I would lug it around campus and plug it into the network and troubleshoot problems. And that was really useful. And after I left the university, I went to work at an ISP, and we had no money, and they wouldn't buy me a sniffer because you know sniffers at that time cost anywhere, you know, uh, from say twenty to eighty thousand dollars, which you know was a huge amount of money, especially for this little ISP to to you know to, to drop money on, you know, especially for a troubleshooting tool. And so while I was working at the ISP, I ha- always had to solve problems, and and it was really frustrating because you know I didn't have this really interactive display of, of packets that I could you know go go scroll through. And so one day I just decided to start writing my own and. Um, I think late 1997, I kind of started taking notes and I didn't actually start writing code till about 98. And in the summertime of 98, I think July, I made the first release of Ethereal. And once I made that release, that it was was all over. I mean, I think after two days, I started getting contributions from people and, and those contributions haven't stopped. And, and, you know, the, the challenge for me since then is to, has been keeping up with all the contributions that, that we get. Wow. So where did you host the code initially? Like where, where did you, I mean, GitHub didn't exist then. So how did that work? Uh, you are correct. GitHub did not exist. So you, you did what you had to do. Um, the very first, uh, iteration of the, the site was, uh, my, a, a coworker named Kenny Root. He, he works for Google now, and uh, you know he worked at the ISP. He had a server that he had, they was hosting at the ISP, and he was kind enough to to host the site early on. Um, 
after that, another coworker started up his own little kind of co-location business at a, in a nearby town in Lawrence, Kansas. And so I went on eBay and I bought this little Sun Spark Station IPX and uh, I had my own domain, zing.org, and I you know, still have that domain. So I set up ethereal.zing.org on this box in Lawrence, Kansas, and uh, that worked out for a while and then it didn't work out. And so I had to find a new place for this box. And you know, I, at that by that point, I had a bunch of friends who you know worked at various hosting places. And so I would trade consulting time for hosting this little box. And it bounced around to, I think, two or three more places until it finally ended up at uh, my next employer, was a, which was a consulting company. And that's when we registered the domain ethereal.com. And, and uh, you know, that's where the project kind of grew from there. But you're right, at that time, SourceForge didn't exist. Uh, you know, certainly anything that follows that, uh, like GitHub and, and you know, Google Code and all those, it didn't exist. So from the very start of the, the project, you know, I got the kind of the notion that everything had to be done ourselves. And that that's actually been very hard to let go of over time. Uh, and you know, so there's some stuff that we kind of have outsourced to other places, but you know, the vast majority of the, the the stuff that the project does is something we host ourselves. You know, we still host our own code repository and our own bug tracker and our own mailing list and things like that. Fantastic. So let's talk about community a little bit because I think uh, that's probably the thing that above all else, above any software features, that's the thing that really makes Wireshark what it is, is the fact that it has such a large community of developers, such a large community of people who use it. Did that completely grow naturally? I mean, did you ever sit back and say, I really want to develop community around this thing, or did it just kind of happen on its own? It really did happen on its own. And uh, the sad thing is I almost killed it early on. Um, after, you know, Right around the time I started the project, uh, my wife and I bought a house, and, and the house was, you know, it was an older home, and so it needed a lot of uh, fixing up and repairs and things like that. And so, you know, I started the, up the software project, and I re released it to the world, and then I focused on hanging drywall. And so, you know, I ended up in this place where I was just completely ignoring emails from the project because I was too focused on working on the house. And... The, the project did languish for, for a few months. And, and finally, one of the Ethereal developers tracked down my phone number at home and called me up and said, look, are you going to work on this or not? And that, that was a wake-up call. And that was a, you know, a really big, you know, strong hint that I needed to support this community. And, and so that's what I you know, kind of did after that. I, I you know, kind of resolved to support the user and developer community. And I've kind of, I've tried to do that as best I can since then. And, but, but once that happened, the, you know, the, the developer community kind of grew and, you know, we started getting a lot of code that, that went from what I initially wrote, which was kind of a, a toy demo thing to something that was really useful in production work. And once that happened, we, we got a pretty good sized user, user community. Uh, the other thing that happened was that we ported it from we we added a port for Windows, and once that happened, it kind of exploded from there. We we had all these Windows users that, and that community grew really quickly. And um, 
so we ended up with this, this group of developers who really knew their stuff. Uh, I've been very fortunate in attracting, for whatever reason, a, a lot of people that really know what they're doing and, and know protocols inside and out. Uh, from there, we attracted these users who really know their stuff inside and out. And, uh, you know, just general users who use it for troubleshooting and, and people like Laura Chapel who do training. Uh, Laura started using Ethereal in her training, and then you know, we added a bunch of, of users because of that. And and today, if you look at the the Wireshark mailing list and the Wireshark question and answer site, you you see so many people who who really know what they're talking about and really are at the top of their game. And that that's been one of the really rewarding things about the project is just the community that we've built. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I can say I too am a product of that community and the great people in it like Laura, who when I was first starting out, you know, she had a lot of resources out there. There are a lot of people who write just simple blog posts. And, and that's even something I started doing at some point was writing just blog posts about my experiences with the tool. And, and I guess, ironically, my post and a lot of other posts are not necessarily about Wireshark. They're about other things. They're about network troubleshooting. They're about security. Yeah. They just happen to be using Wireshark. Uh, which is which is kind of funny how that works, and that's I guess the sign of a good tool. The fact that it you know is the backdrop to so many great stories about how people are able to solve these problems, further their careers, and so on. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I I remember the first few blog posts you wrote; those were great. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, now they say that you know necessity is the mother of invention, and it, it sounds like very much that writing. Ethereal initially was the product; it was really driven by your needs and your current job. Now, I guess at some point, did, did it ever happen that instead of your job driving Ethereal, that Ethereal and later Wireshark drove your job or drove your career where you realized that, hey, this is something that's really around to stick with or that's going to stick and that this is going to, I'm going to follow this wherever it goes? Um, yeah, after, you know, after we got the domain set up and after, after the project started taking off you know, in the early 2000s, that it really became apparent that this was a thing that was, you know, that was happening. You know, that it was a, a its own thing that was growing and and you know needed to be maintained and kept vital. And you know, so the the struggle early on was making sure that this thing paid for itself. You know, my my employer was more than happy to host. Uh, ethereal.com but at the same time we're you know sucking down all the bandwidth that we had at work so you know i wanted to make sure that you know my employer got compensated for that pretty early on and so we sold google ads and that kind of worked some months and it didn't work other months and we did training and that you know kind of did okay but you know i'm uh, of all the people who do wireshark training i'm the last person you want to see do that <laughs> There are so many people who are better than me at it. Let me put it that way. Uh, and you know, we did other things. I think we sold T-shirts and, and things like that. But around the mid 2000s, you know, after we got a bunch of you know the sizable Windows user community, uh, around that time, wireless was popular, and so we had a lot of people on Windows who were trying to troubleshoot wireless networks. And, and if you've ever tried to capture on a wireless interface on Windows XP, uh, you quickly become unhappy. Uh, <laughs> uh, whenever you, what what happens is if you most of the time if you put your NIC into uh, promis promiscuous mode, the NIC shuts down, which is not useful at all. And so we had all these people, you know, sending in questions saying, "How do I, how do I capture wireless stuff on Windows?" And 
a lot of times the answer that came back was, well, install Linux, you loser, which is a horrible answer. It's a terrible answer. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I contacted the people who wrote 1PCAP, uh, uh, Loris Dejuani and Gianluca Vereni. They started out, they were originally students in, in Italy at the, the Politecnico di Torino. And I think by the time I had contacted them, uh, either Loris or both Loris and John Luca had moved to the U.S. And you know, I sent them in an email and said, you know, is, is there any way to fix this? And um, to their credit, uh, I also sent an email to a bunch of other people who wrote Windows drivers. And to their credit, they're the only ones who sent back an answer that was not idiotic. Uh, who you know, They knew the, 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 the problem space and they knew a solution and... Um, so we started exchanging emails and, uh, I actually went out to join them with their company, which was called take case technologies. And as a bit of foreshadowing case technologies was in Davis, which is where I'm sitting right now. And we, we worked together really well. Um, they'd started a company with a guy named John Bruno, who was a, he was a professor at the university here and, you know, we started working together and they invited me to move out here and I, I moved out here and we developed uh, a product called AirPCAP, which lets you do wireless capture on Windows. And that was the first big complimentary project for, product for Wireshark. Uh, that's also why we had to change the name, that because my former employer owned the trademark for Ethereal and we just couldn't come to an agreement on the trademark. So, uh, you know, it was... A, a frustrating thing at the time, but uh, it actually worked out pretty well because uh, a, lot, a lot of people like the name Wireshark better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's a great name, um, and the logo is great. That's one of the things I've always loved about Wireshark is it always has a great logo. I know that's a silly thing to be fixated on, but most of these open source things out there don't don't like have really great brands, and Wireshark has always had a great brand, and a lot of that's in the name and in the logo. Well. Thanks. I mean, that's uh, that's something I, I try to pay attention to. Um, and you're right. If 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 your product doesn't have a a, a good name or even a good logo, it it really does set a tone. It sets a first impression. And uh, you know, the the name and the logo can can go really far in promoting your product. The, yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, as far as the name Wireshark goes. You know, we, we came up with a short list of names, which I showed to my wife, and she's the one that chose Wireshark. Oh, so we have we have her to thank. <laughs> now, are, are there any, um, do you remember any of the failed candidates that didn't make the cut? Um, they were, let's see, uh, they were all kind of animal network names, like, you know, uh, along the, 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 the same lines of Wireshark. One of my friends, uh, was really pushing for the name Ether Weasel, which I'm kind of <laughs> glad we didn't. <laughs> wow. It would have had an awesome logo, but uh, I'm kind of glad we didn't go with that name. Yeah, well, for those who are listening, that's, that's a good bit of, uh, of Wireshark trivia. Uh, it could have very easily been uh, Ether Weasel or Network Weasel or, or some permutation of Weasel that would not have been nearly as cool as Wireshark. Yeah, um, but Packet Shark was another one that, uh, you know, it was thrown in there in the list. Uh, I don't know if I have that list anymore, but uh, it, they were all the along those kind of same lines. I want to pause just a moment and tell you about one of our sponsors. And I really love it when I can talk about sponsors uh, that are products I actually use. And that product in this case is CloudShark. 
The best way I can describe Cloud Shark is like Wireshark in your browser. It allows you to upload packet capture files, tag them, and perform basic analysis on them. I actually use Cloud Shark quite heavily when writing Practical Packet Analysis 3 and developing the online course of the same name. It allowed me to tag the packet captures in ways that made sense to me, uh, so I could tag them whether they were troubleshooting scenarios or security scenarios, even tag them based upon the book chapter or the protocols contained within them. It saved me a ton of time. It provides a lot of great analysis features too. It'll allow you to search through packet captures using a standard search language or filters that you're used to from other tools. Uh, it also allows you to scan for security threats. This is a pretty new feature and I had a chance to play with it recently and it's really neat for providing investigative context as you're going through a PCAP. Now, CloudShark is made by the folks at QA Cafe who are good friends of mine and you can learn more about it by going to cloudshark.org. If you decide to take a serious look at it, make sure you tell them that you heard about it from me on the Source Code Podcast. Now, back to Gerald. So, now how long, I guess, combined Ethereal Wireshark, how old is the project now? It will be 19 years old this July. 19 years old this July, so we're approaching 20. Are y'all going to have a, uh, a Shark Fest for the 20th anniversary? Are y'all going to have a big blowout for it? Uh, I would assume so. Uh, the- <laughs> We haven't really planned that Shark Fest yet, but this upcoming Shark Fest, uh, which is going to be at Carnegie Mellon in June, it's going to be our 10th Shark Fest. So we're going to have a, a pretty good celebration for that. Wow. Yeah, you know, I was just realizing, you know, I, I just finished the third edition of Practical Packet Analysis, and and I, I was writing the introduction, which I wrote the introduction last, um, and I was just talking to, to Bill over at No Starch, and I was, I was talking to him, and I realized, hey, it was 10 years ago I wrote the first edition of that book. And... I, I, I kind of had this like my whole life flashes before me. I realize I'm getting <laughs> old, um, but then to think that you know Wireshark and Etheros exist have been around for much longer than that. I, I don't think that's something people necessarily realize because in in IT and especially in security, which is where I spend most of my time now, most tools haven't existed that long, and and tools come and they go. They don't last for such a long time, and I think that's one of the cool things is that Etheros Wireshark has been so such a big part of the community for so long and that's that's just pretty cool yeah that's and it's a continual continual surprise for me i mean i i always kind of start out each year thinking okay this is the year we peak and but then we grow and and i you know it's kind of we've been very fortunate in that regard so far and uh and so far it's worked out pretty well (laughs) yeah so you think about the times that, that, you know, there were things that maybe threatened the existence of, of what is now Wireshark. I mean, it sounds like one of them was uh, putting up some drywall, maybe at some point kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of, kind of threatened things a little bit. But uh, uh, And I'm sure other people can relate to that one. But were there any times during the course of, of the life of the project where you really struggled or maybe you thought that, that maybe this wasn't worth the time or, or, or any time you had doubts or anything like that? Um, not doubts, uh, as such, you know, when we did change the name, getting everybody to, uh, kind of recognize that, Hey, everybody's moved over to this, you know, it's the same project. We, it's just a different domain and a different name that, that was a struggle initially. I remember, um, I, uh, actually talked to, to Marty Rush that, you know, he wrote Snort and now he's a, a, a VP at Cisco, but you know, he, he, predicted that it would take about 18 months for the name change to happen, you know, for, for everybody to shift. And that prediction was, was spot on uh, to his credit. And so, you know, over the course of 18 months, we, we got everything shifted over and 
you know, everybody's you know, using Wireshark now and, and that worked out pretty well. That, that was a struggle, but it, you know, it, having that challenge in front of me was more encouraging than discouraging. Um, I, I think after that, the, you know, the, the really big issue we have with the project right now is that, uh, is me. Uh, I'm kind of a big bus factor cause I, I, I handle so much of the stuff myself. I, I need to start delegating a lot of the day-to-day work on the project out. And that's what we're working on right now. Have you ever had any significant burnout related to taking so much on yourself and being responsible for so much, uh, you know, code writing and code vetting and those things? Yeah, all the time. Um, you know, if you work in technology or, or actually any other field, it's really easy to get caught up, you know, with what you're working on, especially if you're passionate about it and, you know, work too much on it and kind of become burnt out. And yeah, that it's something I kind of run into continuously. And, and I always have, you know, even before Wireshark and Ethereal and you, you just have to learn to recognize when that's happening and, and, and head it off. And, and, um, uh, you know, one of the things I do is, uh, you know, just kind of pull myself away from technology either, you know, most of the time it's, you know, with a long bike ride, but, you know, I, I do other things and, you know, find other things to kind of, uh, help with that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's what you would say is critical to kind of getting over that is, is looking for fulfillment maybe in, in other places. And it sounds like for you, maybe a lot of that is, is, is riding your bike. And I know I've seen a lot of your pictures that you post from that. And those are always, uh, always great but you think it's really kind of putting that energy into something else is that what you'd say yeah um being able to pull yourself away from from the, well pull yourself out of the environment for even a short time is helpful and do you think that is something that that happens in spurts so it's it's you get down in the rut of burnout and then you 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 kind of do something else for a while or is it like an everyday thing is it almost like a maintenance task it's more of a maintenance test than anything. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely not binary. You know, uh, for me at least burnout is, is kind of, uh, uh, it's very analog. And so, like I said, I can usually recognize when I'm hitting that burnt out stage and, and head it off. And, but, or once I do become burnt out, recognize that, okay, this is happening. I need to, to go fix this. Uh, I, I don't know what it's like for other people. Yeah, now that, that, that makes sense. Well, tell me a little bit. So one of the things you probably deal with quite a bit, um, I deal with it on a very, very small scale just having written the book, but I'm sure for you it's much greater, is is you get a lot of people coming to you asking questions about Wireshark. And, and de facto, you get a lot of people asking you about networking um, because they're not always necessarily Wireshark questions. They're about what they're seeing in Wireshark um, and things like that. And I think that brings us to an interesting discussion about education and and most most numbers and most studies out there believe that we're having a hard time finding enough skilled practitioners, um, both in just general information technology, but also in security. And, and I know security is not the only area you work in. It's where I specialize a little more in now. Um, but I'd love to get your thoughts on on whether you think that is a problem um, that we're just we're not we don't have enough skilled uh, people in those fields. And maybe if, if so, why you think that is. Um, I, I, I'm probably the wrong person to ask, but, uh, um, 
but you're right. I, I do get a lot of questions from people, uh, you know, asking about Wireshark and troubleshooting and stuff. The, if you look at the Wireshark Q and A site, you know, the, the questions do vary quite a bit from, uh, how do I hack this person's Facebook account that's 3,000 miles away? And the answer is you don't. But, <laughs> you know, ranging from, well, ranging from, from kind of, I won't say they're stupid questions, but they're, they're certainly, you know, naive and they show that, you know, this, uh, uh, a, a lack of knowledge about how things work ranging from there to, to actually pretty advanced questions. Um, as far as having enough skilled practitioners, um, you know, I, 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 I'm of the opinion that, you know, we're, as a population, we will never be educated enough, you know, that, that, you know, you, we should always be encouraging people to, to learn as much as they can. Um, uh, as far as the different ways to help them learn, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I know that it was useful for me personally to, to attend college, even though, I, like I said, I was a pretty poor student. I still did manage to learn things like calculus and, and physics and things like that. But, you know, for other people, you know, they may have, uh, th there may be a, a way to get an education that, that, you know, may work better for them. I, I, I honestly don't know. Yeah. Well, we talked we talked a little bit about the, the questions you get related to, to Wireshark and networking. And certainly there are a lot of those. I mean, anyone can go to the uh, the Wireshark mailing list, which is great, or the, the ask.wireshark.com, the, the, the forums there. Over, over time, I mean, certainly as Wireshark gets more users, you get more questions. Have you noticed any trends as far as the quality of questions or, or is it still kind of the same mix of, you know, really advanced questions, really simple questions that could probably be answered just by Googling it before you ask me? I mean, have there been any trends in that over, over the past nearly 20 years? Um, I'll have to think about this one. Uh, um, I, I'm, I'm so immersed in Marshark day to day, to day that, uh, you know, if you ask me about the state of it, you know, 20 years ago, I, I'm, I'm going to you're, it's like a deer in the headlights, but um, I don't, you know, the, I don't know that the proportion of the different types of questions have really changed because a lot of the questions have to do with, you know, whatever problems you may have getting Wireshark working in your environment, you know, at, at that time, you know, that's always going to be a common question. Like years ago, I'm trying to capture wireless on Windows and I can't do that. That that would be a common question. Today it would be, you know. It would be something subject-wise that was different, but it, it, but it's at the same kind of level. Uh, you know, I'm trying to get it installed and, and getting it to work, you know, doing this, or I'm trying to troubleshoot this kind of problem. Uh, I guess over the years, something we see more and more common are homework questions. You know, you, um, if you go to ask.wireshark.org, especially at various times of the year, it's really obvious you know, somebody will post almost probably cut and paste, you know, a question that, that's obviously homework, like, you know, Wireshark is used for this type of blah, 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 you know, and usually the response is, well, you know, go do your own homework. But uh, <laughs> I, I guess that's, it's not exactly recent, but it's certainly, you know, something we see nowadays that we didn't see early on in the project. Yeah, I see. Uh, I see a lot of those myself. Uh, would it send you into a deep spiral of depression if I told you less than six months ago I got somebody who emailed me a question and referred to it exclusively as Ethereal? 
Oh man, I, um, I know. I know you said eighteen months, but uh, I mean, eighteen <laughs> years—that's kind of close. Yeah, it's uh, that uh, that does pop up from time to time. Uh, it it's getting more surprising as time goes on, but uh, it, like it, it, like you pointed out, it still does happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, on the bright side, at least as far as we know, you didn't get like an ethereal, ethereal logo tattoo or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, uh, we'll get. I know you got some things to do, so we'll get you out of here. Uh, but one of the, the last questions I want to ask you, and I ask this question in, in a various forms to, to pretty much everybody. And you know, you're a highly skilled programmer and developer, and you work with a lot of other highly skilled programmers and developers. What would you say to someone who wants to do that type of work, whether they're coming from, you know, they're in college or high school, or they're later in their careers, they're older, and they're thinking about switching? careers what would do you have any general advice that you would share to them about how they can be successful in that endeavor um a don't be afraid to make mistakes everybody does uh you know you refer to me as a highly highly skilled programmer but at the same time i you know when i check stuff into our code review system people always find mistakes so yeah you know don't assume that i'm just some sort of c programming god i'm definitely not that uh the other thing is that uh, nowadays, you know, programming has changed over the years. And nowadays, a lot of people, you know, people joke about it, but it's something people do all the time. You find code snippets like uh, on places like, you know, Stack Overflow when you want to tr- try to do something or you're having trouble doing something. You, you go Google for something and you find out, okay, I can implement this algorithm this way. I, I guess my big word of advice for that mode of programming is don't assume that every stack overflow answer is correct and secure. <laughs> uh, a lot of times I'll go Google for you know, a quick answer on how to do something. And I look at the code and I think, well, wait a minute, you know, this is not right or it's not, you know, it'll work, but it's not completely right. And, and, you know, I might, uh, you know, I might kind of use that method, but I, I don't use that code verbatim because, you know, it, it will have different problems that, that won't work. Yeah, fantastic advice. Sources uh, uh, sources matter. Yeah, I, I guess it boils down to you know just don't believe everything you 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 know don't don't take everything you you get from Stack Overflow or other sites like that as, as gospel because you know those are just other programmers writing in code and you know they may not inspect something that they they paste in or type in you know they they may may not inspect it rigorously so so just you know kind of keep that in mind. Yeah, I guess uh, don't believe everything you read on the internet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that seems appropriate. Huh? Well, well, listen. Even, even if it compiles, don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, well listen, tell us, a, tell us a little bit about uh, SharkFest. It's coming up not too too long from now. SharkFest, we, uh, originally we had SharkFest all in the U.S. Uh, and this past year, we, we actually have two SharkFests, uh, one in the U.S. and one in Europe. The upcoming, the the, the the one that's upcoming in June is going to be in the U.S. It's going to be at Carnegie Mellon University. It'll be our first uh, East Coast Shark Fest. It'll be in Pittsburgh. And um, if you want to learn about protocol analysis or using Wireshark or writing code for Wireshark, that is definitely the place to be. This is where all the, the top tier you know, users and presenters and developers are. And uh, uh, one of the one of the quotes that uh, I think it was from Han Song Bay, who he's one of the big presenters there, and he's actually a coworker. He's our CTO. 
Uh, he mentioned that Sharkfest is one of the few conferences where presenters go and see other presenters' stuff because you know it's uh, from their perspective it's that interesting. Um, and after Carnegie Mellon in October, we're going to have Sharkfest Europe, which, which is uh, this year going to be in Lisbon, Portugal. Wonderful. Yeah, I would definitely. I've I've not had a chance to make it out there yet. I, I kept telling myself, you know, it was always on the West Coast, and I'm, I'm closer to the East Coast down in the South, and, and I always said, the first one you guys have on the East Coast, I'm there. And then, of course, this year you had it, and it was it just happens to be at a time I can't make it. But, but the next <laughs> one, I'm, I'm going to get out there. I promise you I'm going to get out there at some point soon. Well, cool. Cool. All right. Well, well, listen, Gerald, I appreciate your time. I think a lot of people are going to really enjoy hearing uh, about some history of some very popular open source software and, and the history of you as well. So uh, uh, thank you, sir. You have a good one. All right. You too. Thanks a lot. That's going to do it for this episode of the Source Code Podcast. I want to say a big thanks to Gerald, not just for coming on the podcast, but for all the work he does maintaining Wireshark. He's very actively involved in the maintenance of the project. And for those of you who have maintained an open source project, you know it's definitely a labor of love. So to support it how he has and to support it for so long and grow the community he's grown, that's such a great, tremendous thing. So I'm very thankful to him and to all the people in the Wireshark ecosystem, from the folks who help build and maintain it to the folks who do training on it and so on. It's a great community and should definitely make a make a trip up to uh, SharkFest if you're interested in learning more about it and getting actively involved with that community. Do me a favor now, and if you liked what Gerald had to say, make sure to thank him for his time. You can find him on Twitter, at Gerald Combs, uh, G-E-R-A-L-D-C-O-M-B-S, at Gerald Combs on Twitter. As always, I love hearing your feedback on the podcast as well. So if there's something you like, something you didn't like, maybe you have a guest suggestion for the next season, make sure to hit me up on Twitter too. I'm at ChrisSanders88. Also, be sure to check out our sponsors. So for this episode, that's the Rural Tech Fund, at Rural Tech Fund, and CloudShark, so at CloudShark. And we sincerely appreciate you listening. We'll see you in a couple weeks. And as always, it's a beautiful day to catch bad guys. 